In 1 Samuel 22, we have David preparing for his self-defense. Doag, the Edomite, gives information against David. And the murder and massacre of Ahimelech and all that belonged to him. Hear now the word of Almighty God, inspired by his spirit, profitable for us. 1 Samuel 22, starting at verse 1. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went thence to Mizpah of Moab. And he said unto the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you, till I know what God will do for me. And he brought them before the king of Moab. And they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold. And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart, and get thee into the land of Judah. Then David departed, and came into the forest of Hareth. When Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men that were with him, now Saul abode in Gibeah under a tree in Ramah, having his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. Then Saul said unto his servants, that stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? And there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you that is sorry for me or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait, as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him vittles, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob. And they came, all of them, to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, thou son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said unto him, Why have ye conspired against me? Thou and the son of Jesse, and that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and hast inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in thine house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant, 
nor to all the house of my father. For thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. And the king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. And the king said unto the footmen that stood about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled, and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priests, and slew on that day fourscore and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and sucklings, and oxen and asses and sheep with the edge of the sword. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. And David said unto Abiathar, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life, but with me thou shalt be in safeguard. Thus far the reading of God's inspired word, 1 Samuel 22. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of this chapter, a most dreadful chapter in the Word of God, a horrible crime described for us. Verses 1 through 5, we have David's initial preparations for self-defense and edification. He escapes to the cave Adullam, about 15 miles west of the city of Bethlehem, where David was from about seven miles east from Gath. The word escaped means he slipped away. It's likely that Psalm 142 was written within the cave of Adullam. It is lawful, we see here, to flee from a tyrant, from a persecutor. It is not uh, lawful to punish a person as David for doing nothing wrong, and so therefore he could flee the punishment. When his brethren and his father's house heard it, that is David's brethren, remember the ones who said he was naughty and prideful, they're now his friends, realizing that though in times past they had their differences, blood, as we say, is thicker than water. They come to his aid, but also recognizing that Saul, in his demonic insanity, might have them killed too. Notice also verse 2. Everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented. We might call this, uh, as Matthew Henry says, men of broken fortunes and restless spirits that were put to their shifts and knew not well what to do with themselves. Now, just to correct perhaps a misnotion we might get, these men were not kept in rebellion. 
There are occasions where David has to speak to them to stop them from rebellion against Saul. Chapter 24, verses 4 through 7. Chapter 26, verses 8 through 11. But these are men described as being in stress, in debt. The word there where it says discontented is the same for the name Mara, which Naomi gives to herself, one who is in bitterness, one who is in discontent. Likely, these people had been crushed by the oppression and tyranny of Saul himself, or perhaps some of his servants had tyrannized over them, brought them into debt. We don't know all the details. We do know, however, that David was a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember the sorts of people who came to Christ during his earthly ministry? It became a point of controversy with the Pharisees. He has publicans, that is people who collect taxes, on behalf of the Roman government, and harlots, and sinners. Jesus ate with these people. The Westminster Annotations note the following. Christ also entertained such as were base and contemptible in the eyes of the world, maligned by their enemies, and under the pressures of many afflictions, deeply and desperately indebted to God's justice, and groaning especially under the heavy burden of their sins. Let me ask you, are you at ease or are you distressed? Do you have a massive debt that you owe to God, or do you see yourself as rich? Do you think of yourself as spiritually poor, or as having some righteousness to offer to God? Let me urge you, see your poverty, for you and I all have it. We have a debt so grand, do you remember the two servants? that we talked about with all the talents, the billions and billions of dollars that he owed to the king that was forgiven him. And his fellow servant, he went and wrung his neck because he wanted a few coins from him. Do you remember this? That's an illustration of how our debts are viewed by God. If you see your poverty, your debts, your misery and wretchedness, then look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will release you from the wages of sin, which is death. He will protect you from the tyranny of the devil, as David did from Saul. And so here we see Christ as the captain of our salvation, David being an imperfect representation of his greater son. David brings his mother and his father to the king of Moab. Let this sink in for a moment. The king of Moab is a heathen, an enemy of the people of God. Who's the greater enemy to David at this point? The heathen or Saul, the king of Israel? Well, it's obvious. Saul is. There are, there are contrasts that we're intended to see in this chapter. The king of Israel persecuting his most faithful servant the heathen king protecting his parents. You see that? That ought not to be. Saul should have been protecting them. David also may have had relatives through Ruth, his great-grandmother, still in Moab. We don't know for sure, but at least he had connections with the king of Moab. Notice there in verse 5, the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart and get thee into the land of Judah. 
Now a hold is a safe place. It's a place where you can hold up. You've got supplies, you've got protection. Your life is safe and secure. What God is saying through his prophet is, leave the security of the hold. Go forth to the land of Judah. And God is preparing him not to trust in his own machinations. Now Gad the prophet is one of the authors of this book. We see this in 1 Chronicles 29, 29. Gad was sent by God to confront David for his sins in numbering the people, 2 Samuel 24, 11 through 19, also in 1 Chronicles 21. He is a man of God who speaks the word of God. Abide not in the hold, depart, and get thee into the land of Judah. Appear among your tribe. Be prepared for your coronation as king, in other words. Encourage your supporters to be present among them. And also to test David's faith. Do you need creaturely protection or is God enough? Do you remember what David did before? He wanted creaturely protection. Namely, by his own wickedness and devices, he was protecting himself. God is saying, do my bidding, David. I will protect you. I will keep you from harm. David, what does he do? Does he murmur? Does he complain? Listen, God, you don't really understand. Now, Gad, if you just knew more about the scriptures, you wouldn't be telling me to do such careless things. Is that what David did? It's what we would tend to do, isn't it? What does David do? He obeys immediately, just obedience, no murmuring, no complaining. He's a new man. Verses 6 through 10, we have Saul's flattering complaint about David and his psychophant Doeg. The word psychophant is very interesting. It's someone who is sort of disgusting, flattering submission to a superior. It literally means one who shows you the figs. Because in Athens, they outlawed the, it was either the importation or exportation of figs, the uh, sukas. And they would go and show, look, that guy has the sukas. Look over there, magistrates. Remember you outlawed this? He's over there with the figs. So it's people who flatter their rulers, who follow their every word, wear the mask, get the shot. Yes, master, psychophants. Saul abode in a tree in Ramah. Think about that. Where's David? He's in flight, in holds, in caves, in forests. Where's Saul? Sitting under a tree, living the good life. He has his spear in his hand. Do you know why men carry spears in the ancient world? It's because they expect at any moment what's going to happen to them. Somebody's going to attack them. Now, who's he surrounded by? All of his servants. Is he secure among his servants? He's under a tree, living the good life. All of his bodyguard and retinue are surrounding him. Why is he afraid? David, on the other hand, goes fearlessly where God commands him to go, trusting in God's promises... The Westminster annotations say that like a tyrant full of jealousies and fears who think if not himself insecure, though compassed by his friends and followers. I note then this doctrine. An unbelieving and disobedient life 
may have pleasant environmental parts, but notice it's generally miserable in the inner man. An, uh, a disobedient life as was Saul's, you may be living the good life, sitting under a tree, surrounded by a bodyguard, and be miserable inside. David might be with his ragtag band, held up in holds and in forests, and he is at peace with God, and a good conscience sustains him. Let us trust and obey. It is not our environment that makes us. It is our faith or lack thereof in God. Let us seek to have an approving conscience. Regardless of whether we fare well in life or ill in life, God is with us and approves of us. That's all that matters. As Paul says in Romans 8, whether it be persecution or peril or famine or nakedness or sword, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Saul, not so. Notice this fool, Saul. He says, Hear now, ye Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Do you notice the son of Jesse line again? You Benjamites, this despicable shepherd boy, this son of a despicable shepherd, is he going to bribe you with goods and lands like I do? You see that? Will he give you expropriated lands stolen from the citizens of Israel and give them to you? No, of course he won't. So why have you conspired, he asks them. Note here the devilish relationships. God's law says you are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You're to treat others as you would like to be treated. And friendship is an expression or an exposition of that law, love thy neighbor as thyself. But notice, on what basis does a devilish relationship proceed? It's called quid pro quo. This for that. You give me what I want, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you lands, I'll give you vineyards. What's he going to give you? See, you should be my friend. You should look out for my interests. That's what he's saying. But you're not. There is none of you that is sorry for me. He's whining. Nobody shows me. All of you have conspired against me, he says. You all made a covenant. You came together in a league to not tell me about this covenant that David and Jonathan made. My son and the son of Jesse, they entered into a covenant and nobody told me about it. Wah. He's crying. He's whining. You should feel sorry for me. You should have shown me. You see, this is the quid pro quo. If I don't get what I want out of you, I'm going to whine. I'm going to throw a fit. I'm going to tell you, you should feel sorry for me, 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 me. Manipulative, self-seeking, devilish. My son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait. As at this day, whoa, 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 time out. Who's lying in wait for whom? Who's chasing down whom? Who intends to murder whom? Does David lie in wait to kill Saul? No. But you see, 
when we have this devilish approach to reality, when we think of ourselves as gods, as we will see Saul thinks of himself, everyone has to bow to my wishes. Everyone has to please me or I'll throw them in the trash. That's how I work, baby. Use them and then throw them out. That's how Saul lives. Jonathan did not stir up David against Saul to lie in wait for his life. David was playing the harp, remember? And Saul tried to kill him by throwing a spear at him. Did David lie in wait to kill him after that? No, he came back and played the harp some more. And then he did it again. Is that lying in wait for someone? No, this is insane. This is lunacy. As I said, sin is insanity. His eyes are blinded. David is fleeing for his life. Oh, but we have another bird of the same feather in this flock. Doeg the Edomite. Ah, oh, I saw the son of Jesse. Ah, I've got information that'll get me some good vineyards. I'll get me some lands. I may not be the son of Benjamin, but hey, I'm going to get rich. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. You see, he is a psychophant. He's, as we say, obsequious, bowing down on the ground to his magistrate. Oh, I've got information against the son of Jesse. Now notice, we call this bearing false witness, even though it's true. Is it true that he saw the son of Jesse, that is David, did he actually see him come to Nob? Yes. Did he go to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub? Yes. Is he bearing a true witness? No, he is not. In fact, in Psalm 52, verses 1 and 2, he is accused by the Holy Ghost, this Doeg the Edomite, of having a tongue like a razor, working deceitfully. He spoke the truth unseasonably. Is what he said true? Yes. What's the context in which he said these words? Well, Saul is insanely jealous. He thinks all of his servants have conspired against him so that David and Jonathan made a covenant and he never heard about it. And that David made this covenant with Jonathan so he could lie in wait and kill Saul. That's the context. Should you say these words at that time to that man? No, it's unseasonable. It doesn't fit the circumstance. It may be true, but you may not say it in that circumstance. It's against the ninth commandment. It's against the sixth commandment because Saul has the power to kill David. You're violating two commandments at once. Oh, guess what else he did? I've got more information. Verse 10. He inquired of the Lord for him. Is that true? Yes. And he gave him vittles. Is that true? Yes. And he gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Is that true? Yes. You see how people can bear false witness while saying things that are technically true? You remember what they said about Jesus, the false witnesses? He said he would destroy the temple and raise it in three days. Was that true? Yes. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. So they said the truth to a false end. Unseasonably. Matthew Henry comments, 
All this was true, but it was not the whole truth. He ought to have told Saul further that David had made Ahimelech believe he was then going upon the king's business. Do you remember that part, Doeg? Did you forget about that? That David lied through his teeth and made Ahimelech think, oh, he's actually on the business of the king. Does he say that? Does he leave that out? Why would he leave that out? Because it doesn't curry favor with Saul, the insane king. Question 145 of our larger catechism, what are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment? The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning. But you said blah, 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 blah. You ever said that to your brothers or your sisters? Was it true? Did they say it? Yes. Did they mean what you're making them say? Maybe not. But if you're perverting what they say to a wrong end, you are guilty before God. Unseasonably, this isn't the right time to be saying these things. You ought not to pervert it to a wrong meaning. Did Ahimelech conspire against Saul in what he did? No, he thought he was helping one of Saul's best servants, as we'll see, and as we've already read. Let us learn to govern our tongues. Let us learn to speak the truth and the truth that is appropriate at the time when it must be spoken, not unseasonably. Let us repent when we lie or slander or speak truth unseasonably or maliciously. Saul then has murderous tyranny against Ahimelech and his house as executed by Doeg, the psychophant, in verses 10 through 19. Verse 11 We have here the king sending and calling, holding court, you might say. Bring forth the accused, in other words. He brings him and his entire house. Now, Ahitub was Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas. We see this in chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Phinehas was the son of whom? Eli. Chapter 14, verse 3. What did God say he would do to the entire house of Eli? Do you recall chapter 2, verses 27 through 36? The man of God sent, and he said, what would he do? Destroy and cut off his entire house. Notice how Ahimelech treats this insane tyrant. Verse 12, here I am, my Lord. He continues with reverence and respect even for an insane tyrant. Saul said unto him, Why have ye conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse? Now, if you've studied the principles of reason, you will realize this is a fallacy. In reason, if you want to convince somebody of something, you can't assume your position is right unless you have evidence to prove it. Then you present your evidence to persuade the other party. This is called assuming what is to be proven, or the begging of the question. The question is, has Ahimelech conspired against Saul? What's the answer? No. But do you see what Saul asks? Why have you conspired against me? Not, have you conspired against me? But why have you done so? 
I know you've done it. Tyrants are irrational. They will assume what ought to be proven. Ahimelech had not conspired against him. And notice, worse than this, the whole reason why you conspired against me with the son of Jesse is so that he should rise against me to lie in wait. That's it. Sedition, tyrannicide. That's why you helped him out and conspired against me. Your hospitality, your kindness, your humanity on the Sabbath, all that was to foment rebellion. I know it. Do you see why Doeg makes inroads with Saul? They're just the same sort of person, aren't they? Wicked, irrational hypocrites. Slanderous, malicious, self-seeking men. Now, this godly priest responds very well. Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David? Fact. David's the most faithful servant you've got. Fact number one. What else? Which is the king's son-in-law? Fact. He is your son-in-law. And goeth at thy bidding. Fact. Saul sends him, he goes. Right? Everywhere Saul said, David would go. Now, as far as Ahimelech knows, that's still the case. He doesn't realize he's fleeing from Saul's tyranny. So as far as he knows, this is true. It's a fact. That's, in fact, why Ahimelech helped him get food and a sword. And David is honorable in thine house. Fact. Yes, all facts, all true. Every last word. Beloved, when we speak, let us only speak what we know to be true. A lie is not created if we speak something that is not correct, but we think it is. A lie is with the intention of deceiving. So Ahimelech may not realize that David has fallen out of honor in Saul's house. But so far as he knows, that's an absolute fact. That's a settled reality. This is how it is. He's the most honorable man in your house. Your most faithful servant He's your son-in-law. He goes wherever you tell him to go. Let us be without guile. Remember Nathan? An Israelite indeed without guile. Why does he call him that? What good thing comes out of Nazareth? Did he actually think that? Yeah. So did he say what he was thinking? Yes. Was he right? No. Good things came out of Nazareth, didn't they? But so far as he knew, any, anything that came out of that place is trash. Okay, Nazareth is garbage. So he spoke what he thought without guile. Let us be without guile, without craft, cunning, artifice, duplicity, deceit, without the intention of deceiving or misleading others, though it may cost us much, and it will cost Ahimelech. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him, be it far from me? Didn't David always come to talk to me about things? Wasn't he always asking me to use the Urim and the Thummim to inquire of God? Of course he was. David's a godly man. Thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. True. Facts. Everything he says is true. And how, pray tell, does the devil think of truth speaking? What is the devil's judgment against those who speak what is true? 
Thou shalt die. Thou shalt surely die. You know who said that? God. Genesis 2.17, the same exact Hebrew phrase, dying, thou shalt die. You know who else said that? God, to Abimelech in Genesis 20, verse 7. The man that you've taken, is this woman is his wife. You touch her, you die. Dying, thou shalt die. Who has the right to say that? God Almighty has the right to say that. Who does Saul think he is? God Almighty. Pretty pathetic God, isn't he? Making false judgments, listening to false witness, insane with jealousy, rage, suspicion, and tyranny. Tyranny rules without God. Why? Because they think that they are gods. They think they can make the judgments and pronounce the sentence that God only has the right to pronounce. And notice, as if he were God, you and all your father's house. Who has the right to say that? Human magistrates have the right to say, you and your whole house, you're dead. You know who has the right to say that? God. And only God has the right to say that. To men, God says, the son shall not be put to death for the sin of his father. The father shall not be put to death for the sin of his son. Every man shall die for his own sin. God has the right to say that. Well, the whole family's now going to die. Why? Because he knows everything. He has all authority over all of his creatures. Does Saul have absolute authority and absolute knowledge of all facts? He does not. He does not have the capacity to make such a judgment. So he says to the footmen that stand about him, Slay the priests of the Lord. Notice those words, of the Lord. They're his priests. They belong to him. They're his bond slaves doing his bidding. Kill them all, he says. This is an unlawful order. It is without authority and is vacated from the inception of the order. That's very important to understand. If a magistrate issues an order and God does not tell him he's supposed to issue it, you must not listen to such a magistrate. This is an impious order as well as an unlawful order. It's against the priests of the Lord themselves, against those in sacred office, God has rejected Saul, so Saul attacks his ministers. You know, that's what the ancient apostate Julian did, right? He took up arms against Jesus Christ. When Constantine became a Christian, what did the heathens do? They wanted to crush and destroy him. They fought against him. They would not give up their dragon-like power. Ah, but there's someone in the lot, isn't there? That other bird of the same feather, he'll do his bidding. He is the psychophant. The king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priests. Does he do it? Yes, because he's a psychophant. He has no moral standards. He has no piety and true fear of God. Was he detained before the Lord? Of course he was. He's a hypocrite. Will he actually do what God says? No. 
And when he receives an unlawful order, does he violate it and say, no, that's not lawful, I can't do that, as the other men did? No. He's ready to do whatever the magistrate says. He is a sycophant. Then Doeg turns and slays four score and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. Do you know what the ephod symbolized? These are holy men. These are types of the Savior, Jesus Christ, clothed in white linen, serving the Lord in his very presence, and you have the gall to attack them for what? For telling you the truth? Not even for them telling you the truth? Because Ahimelech, the father of the household, he told you the truth, and that's enough to kill them all? Wicked, godless, perverse and satanic, an act against God and his true religion and his church. Oh, not content with this, though. He goes to the city. The men, the women, the children, the little babies, sucklings, all their animals, all their houses burned with fire and killed. This is Satan's ethics. Good is evil. Evil is good. And if I have any suspicion that you have done something against me, I'll kill you all. Genocide. As if the priests of the Lord ought to be devoted to destruction as the godless heathens were. That's how he treats them. You remember what he did to the Amalekites that God said, wipe them all out, did he obey that? No. But here he's got his buddy Doeg, his little dog and pony show psychophant, go off and kill all the priests. Sure, I'll do that. Absolutely. Game over. But note, what man means for evil, God means for good. What did God say he would do to Eli's house? Wipe them all out. Did he do it? Yes. Did Saul have the right to execute that vengeance? No, he did not. He's sinning. And yet God, through the wrath of man, through the sins of men, God accomplishes his purposes. Was it right for Pontius Pilate to wash his hands of the whole matter? Was it right for the Jews to falsely accuse Jesus and to hire men to lie about him? Was it right for the Romans by their lawless hands to nail him to the cross? Wrong, wrong, sin, sin, wicked impiety, godless, filthy, vile behavior. What does God accomplish through all that? Our salvation. The death of his son so that we might have life. God working even through the wicked acts of men to accomplish his purposes. This is the mystery of divine providence. This is why we cannot be a people in despair. We are more than conquerors, even in the midst of persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. God for us, who against us? Abiathar then escapes to David from this barbarous execution and informs him of it. One son, just one named Abiathar. Some think he may have been back at the tabernacle looking after the affairs of God's house, spared him. God, in his wrath against Eli's house, 
remembers mercy. God had promised to Eli that he would have a small remnant who would escape. 85 persons slain with their wives and their little ones, Abiathar is left. God remembers in the midst of his wrath, his mercy. And he fled after David. When the vengeance flies upon the city of man, when God brings down fire and brimstone, where will you hide yourself? I say to you, there is one place of safety and refuge, and that is the greater son of David. David is the place Abiathar escapes. Where will we escape? Flee then to Jesus Christ. Look to the Savior. Receive him as your captain, your redeemer, and your king. Notice David, verse 22. What does he say concerning his involvement in this? Well, you know, I didn't mean for that to happen. It's not my fault. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house to the very one whose dad, uncles, brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, oxes, asses, all dead. Why? I've occasioned that. He confesses his sin. I'm the hinge. That's what this Hebrew word means for occasioned. I'm the hinge on which their death swung. All those souls destroyed by Doeg the Edomite, I'm the fault. I'm at fault here. I occasioned it. The Septuagint uses the word itios, which where we get our word ideology from. It means the study of causations. I am the occasional cause, the sins that I committed. When I went there and talked to Ahimelech, when I made up my grand story, I occasioned the death of 80 and 5 men. We may cause disasters by our well-intended wicked deeds. We may cause destruction and suffering for others. And let us not be as the rest who would say, well, not my problem. I didn't mean that. I was just lying. No big deal. No, David drives it home as a true penitent. I sinned, I caused the problem. Let us learn to recognize the part we play in the sufferings of others. It may be we do not intend for others to suffer, but are we inflicting through our thoughtless self-seeking suffering on others? I didn't mean for that to happen. Well... Did you cause it? Did you occasion it? Were you the hinge on which the door turned? Then confess it. And 